Well, good morning. How's everybody doing today? It's good to see you, and so glad you're here. Before we get started with our study this morning, I just want to let you know something. Uh, we have been receiving uh, offering gifts for disaster relief uh, coming out of uh, Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma, and uh, you have responded uh, very generously. We have received a total of $5,435, and we're going to be sending that on uh, to really make an impact in a lot of different ways, and I just want you to be aware of that, that uh, your gifts and your prayers are going to be touching lives. I also want you to be aware uh, that we already have uh, at least one a couple that has made a commitment uh, to go and to do ministry uh, later uh, this fall. Uh, it's going to be later in October and uh, they're going to be serving in the Houston area, and uh, we may be able to share some more about that as we get closer, but just want you to know not only are our gifts going uh, that direction to make a difference, but also some of our people, part of the body here uh, at Southwinds, and we're just grateful for God's work in that regard. I want to welcome you to week number two of Scent, which is our fall study, our brand new series through the book of Acts, and if you're not there yet, go ahead and get your Bible open to Acts chapter 1. Uh, verses 1 through 11. And I want to start this morning by talking about movies. I'm guessing that uh, some of you, probably lots of you, watched a few movies over the summer. Summer's a time where many, many people go see many movies, it seems, and especially summer blockbusters. I I'm pretty sure that uh, lots of you saw some summer blockbusters this year. I, I wonder how many of you know that the summer blockbuster is actually a fairly recent phenomenon. We actually know when the very first summer blockbuster took place, and if you're a movie trivia buff, you kind of may know this yourself, but it actually happened in 1975. Anybody guessing the movie yet? Uh, it's the movie Jaws. Yeah, some of you know that, and Jaws came out in 1975, 42 years ago. I just want to check and see how many of you are still scarred by that experience. You know, what were your parents thinking? Why did they let you go to that movie? Why did they take you to the movie, some of you were wondering? Well, Jaws actually uh, changed the way that Americans watch movies because it broke every box office record. And Hollywood looked at that and realized, hey, we should try this again. And so summer blockbusters just started to be a thing. A couple of years after that, uh, Hollywood actually tweaked the summer blockbuster Star Wars came out and introduced something new to moviegoers. We're very used to it now, but they weren't back then. Uh, Star Wars introduced the sequel, the sequel, because we knew there was going to be another movie by the end of that first movie, right? They just told us another episode is going to come. And so we started getting used to having sequels. And then 22 years after that, in 1999, uh, the Star Wars uh, franchise morphed the sequel into something else introduced to us what is now known as the prequel, right? When Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace came out, and all of us to this day, or some of us are still scarred by Jar Jar Binks. We wish they'd never met him, right? And so now this, this kind of thing happens every summer, right? There's always these summer blockbusters, and there's always these stories going on, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You never know really where you are. It's hard to keep track. Is this earlier? Is this later? And then there's some movies like the Star Trek franchise where they just started the whole storyline over. They just wiped the past out, started a new one a few years ago. Well, as we move out of summer, which we officially did this week, and we move into fall, we are exploring 
uh, as a church family, the greatest blockbuster of all time. And it is not a movie. It is a person, Jesus Christ. Because the truth is Jesus has impacted more lives than every Hollywood movie combined. Uh, We're going to be exploring, though, Jesus' blockbuster story in a different way. We're going to be looking not at the the story itself, but we're going to be looking at the sequel. And I explained a little bit about that uh, last week, how Acts is really about what happened next after Jesus' time on earth, when he went off the scene. Acts tells us about the next kind of chapter in that story. And as I was looking at the opening verses of Acts this week, it made me actually think of another blockbuster, and that is the Mission Impossible movies. Uh, Because Jesus leaves his followers with a mission. And I don't know if you know this. This could be good news to some of you, maybe not to others. But there's another Mission Impossible movie coming out next year, 2018. I think it's tentatively titled Mission Impossible, The Nursing Home. Because Tom Cruise is really... (laughs) He's really getting up there. You know, I just, I don't know about that. So anyway, that's another subject. Okay, you guys are getting me distracted up here. So back to Acts. Jesus gives his followers a mission, and that mission on the surface looks impossible, right? But what we're going to see in the book of Acts is that it is possible. It is mission possible. So I want to read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and then we will see three things that tell us how our mission is possible. Luke begins, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with him, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water. But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father is set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And this is the word of the Lord. So let's look at three reasons that we see in this text about how we can know that we have a mission that is possible. And the first thing I want you to see in verses 1 through 5 is that God prepares us for his mission. In other words, God provides us what we need to carry out the mission. You know, if you watch those Mission Impossible movies as they begin before they actually go on the mission. They gather the team and they gather the gears and they gather all the gadgets and they train maybe and they they make their plans. They get prepared. Well, these first five verses are really about that. God is preparing his people. Verses one and two help us know some of the real foundational things. It says in my former book, Theophilus, 
I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And so here we meet uh, some of the people that are involved in telling this story, and it's important that we understand them. Uh, Last week, I told you Luke is the author, and if you weren't here last week, uh, I, I need to remind you that when he says, my former book, he is referring to the gospel of Luke. That gospel is also referred to this guy named Theophilus. So Acts is part two, Luke is part one. Really, Luke and Acts just go hand in hand. They they were written to be together. Now, to help us really get some of what's happening, I I want you to see the prologue actually to the gospel of Luke. Because in truth, if this is a two-part work, the prologue of Luke functions as a prologue to Acts as well. So let's look at Luke 1, 1 through 4. Again, Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, if you're going to understand Acts, it's important that you keep both of these passages in your mind. And let me just remind you and flesh out a little of what we introduced last week. We know that Luke was a doctor. That tells us he was a highly educated man. And scholars tell us that his Greek prose, the words he uses, the structure of his syntax, uh, everything he uses to write Luke and the gospel uh, and the book of Acts is very polished. Uh, it's kind of technical Greek. It's a more difficult, among the more difficult books to read uh, in the Greek New Testament. So he's a man of intellectual prowess. Along with that, we know that he is a skilled historian. He shows us that. He, he tells Theophilus that he made an orderly account. So Luke is a guy who's very interested in getting the facts right. And that's kind of what you want in a doctor, right? I mean, do you want a doctor who says, oh, it could be the liver, it might be the heart, who knows, doesn't matter, right? You want a doctor who gets the facts right, and Luke is that kind of guy. Now, another thing about Luke that's interesting is that Luke actually did not see Jesus himself, but we know that he was with those who did. Uh, We know that Luke was one of Paul's traveling companions. Uh, Later on in this book of Acts, we're going to see sections where Luke writes they as he refers to Paul and the people that were traveling with him. And then at some point, you'll see it shift, and he's all of a sudden saying, we. And when we read we, we know that Luke was there. He was describing things that he actually saw. So he traveled with Paul on some of his missionary journeys. And that would mean on those journeys, he would not only have time to interview Paul, but also to record a travel log, to take down the details of the trip, the cities and the you know, the the paths, all the places that they went. Alongside of that, we know also that Luke lived in Palestine uh, for about two years. Uh, He comes with Paul to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21, and then uh, he leaves Jerusalem with Paul in Acts chapter 27. And in the meantime, in those chapters in between that, we know that, that Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea, which is a city a few miles away, for about two years. And so evidently, during those two years, uh, Luke uh, was in Jerusalem and the vicinity. This means that he would have had many opportunities 
to interview Jesus' family, interview Jesus' friends. Uh, This means that in all likelihood, he would have had face-to-face conversations with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And this would explain why in the Gospel of Luke, we have all of these wonderful details about uh, Jesus' conception, Mary's pregnancy, and then his actual birth, because Luke was able to talk face-to-face to Mary. He, he would have had time, and we can assume that he probably did, uh, to travel around Palestine from his home base in Jerusalem and see the places where Jesus taught, see the places where Jesus performed miracles. Uh, one of the interesting things that you can note out of that uh, that tells us something about Luke is that Luke is the only gospel writer that refers to the Sea of Galilee as a lake. Now, we would look at it, and it's a body of water. It's inside land. We would call that a lake. They called it the Sea of Galilee. Those words are somewhat interchangeable. Why would Luke call it a lake? Well, the other gospel writers had lived in Palestine, and there was this sea to them. Luke had spent a lot of time traveling around the Mediterranean world, and therefore he had seen the Mediterranean Sea. And so he looks at the sea, and then he looks at Sea of Galilee says, that's not a sea, that's a lake. And it's just kind of an indication of his perspective, uh, where he was coming from, how he would describe things. You just put all of this together, and there's a lot of research out there if you want to check it out. We know, and people have examined what he's done, that Luke was a very careful, uh, very capable historian. He has given us a very credible source of information It grows out of his training to keep meticulous records of facts. So we have in his writings, Luke and Acts, we have this solid historical basis on which to base the story of the Gospels, the story of the early church. And that's what we're going to be walking through in the weeks ahead. And by the way, aren't you grateful for a doctor who saw that his medical profession was not his only calling? Uh, Luke is not an apostle. He's, you know, he's, he's what we would call a layperson. He's not, he's, he's not a pastor. He is just a, a person who came to know Jesus Christ. And out of that relationship, he used what God had given him to serve and to bless the ministry of the people that were all around him. This just reminds us that uh, it's not just pastors that God calls and uses. God calls every one of us to ministry. And so like I said last week, we have over one-fourth of the New Testament because of a doctor, and that's Luke. Now, Theophilus is also important for us to understand. Uh, Luke refers to him in his gospel as most excellent. He gives him this title, and, and this tells us that Theophilus was probably a man of some high standing in Roman society. We don't really know where he is exactly spiritually. He's come into contact with Luke in some way. We know that. And most likely, he has believed in Jesus, but he still has some doubts. He still has some questions. Or it's also possible that he is someone who's exploring the claims of Christianity. He's interested. Maybe he's standing right on the edge of belief, like some of you. He's got questions. He's read. He's heard. He knows some things, but he's still wondering. And so he wants to know more. And either way, he probably knows that belief in Jesus Christ is going to cost him. He has this high social standing. It's not going to help his social standing to become a Christian. And I think that is why Luke says in verse 4 of his gospel, I have written this, these things so that you may know 
so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. See, that purpose that Luke had originally for Theophilus, he also has for us. He wants to strengthen our faith, and he wants to help us if our faith is not there yet. He wants to help our faith come alive. Now, what does Luke want us to have faith in? What does Luke want us to believe? The answer is back in the first verse of Acts. He says it's Jesus. In the first verse of Acts, he says, I'm going to talk to you about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And this just reminds us Christianity is first and foremost about Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. Christianity is not a set of rules to obey like most religions. And many of us have been confused about this in the past. Maybe some of you are confused even now. You think the essence of following Christ, of being a Christian, is you got to keep these rules. And have you ever noticed the rules differ from church to church? There's a lot of people out in the culture that think Christianity is about doing certain things and not doing other things. It's about rules. The Bible never says that. Christianity is about Jesus. Christianity is also not a philosophy. It's not a set of higher ideas like many world religions, you know, things that will give you peace in your heart and help you have a better outlook on life and deal with this world. Christianity is about a person. It's about Jesus, this person who acted in history, who worked redemption in history. He is the content of our faith. And it says here that he's writing about what Jesus began to do and teach. And do not miss those two words, do and teach. Because with those words, Luke sums up his entire gospel. You could put it this way. The gospel of Luke was written about the words and works of Jesus. And both those things matter immensely. In the gospel of John, Jesus himself says, the works I do are not my own works. I do what I see the Father doing. He later said, the words I speak are not from my own authority. I speak the words my Father tells me to speak. And so throughout the Gospel of John in particular, Jesus is saying, my works and my words are those of God. Therefore, you should believe. And Luke is saying the same thing here. You know, as you're beginning to study Acts, it's always going to be helpful for you to go back to Luke, and especially the ending of the Gospel of Luke is closely connected to the opening of the book of Acts. And if you go back to Luke 24, at the end of his gospel, Jesus has come to strengthen his disciples. And in a few short verses, Luke shows us that both the words and the works of Jesus that he leaves with his disciples really matter. In Luke 24, 44, Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. Christianity is a fulfillment of prophecy. And then in verses 45 to 47, Jesus talks about his death and his resurrection. In other words, his works. Jesus is saying to his disciples, my, my words and my works, they, they go together. They each point to and they each validate the other. I hope you're tracking with me. This is so important because our faith, our faith rests fully on the finished work of Jesus. It's not on anything we do. And the Bible is crystal clear on this. The Bible teaches that apart from Christ, we are all dead in our sins, that we are all deserving of eternal punishment and eternal separation from God in a place the Bible calls hell. And the Bible tells us there's nothing we can do to get ourselves out of that predicament. 
It is only by the work of Christ that we can be saved. The gospel tells us that God, being rich in mercy, sent his son. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life doing what only he could do, doing what we could never do. He was crucified on a cross as the scriptures prophesied, a substitute on our behalf, the Lamb of God who who takes away the sin of the world. He paid our sin debt. And then the Bible tells us three days later, he rose from the grave, and he defeated death for us, and he gives life to all who believe in him. That's the work of Jesus Christ. That's what we are saved by. That's what Jesus did. Now, how do the works of Jesus relate to his words? How does what Jesus did affect you? How does it change your life? How does it transfer to you and make you righteous before God? And the Bible's answer is faith. Faith in the words of Jesus. There's a place in the Gospels where Jesus himself said, he who has my words has that which judges him. And I'm bringing this up for a very important reason because there are many people who love the works of Jesus. They look at the story of Jesus and they say, I just love his humanitarian works. He healed the blind. He fed the poor. I mean, their picture of Jesus is kind (laughs) of... That picture of Jesus, you know, he's, his hair's been shampooed very freshly. You can just see, and he's like talking very quietly, and he only ever says nice things, and, and he does nice things for people. That's the Jesus that they like, and they like his works, but then you'll find for some people who like his works, they hate his words because that same Jesus who did all those things, that same Jesus said, I am the way and the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father. No one except through me. And the truth is, we need to know, we don't get to pick and choose. Jesus won't allow that. We have to take both his words and his works because Jesus' words explain his works. They tell us what they mean. And on the other hand, Jesus' works validate his words. They tell us that his words are true. Jesus himself says, you are judged by my words. So do you believe today what Jesus said about himself? Do you believe what he claimed to be? We must embrace both. This is John 12, 48, where Jesus said, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Romans 10, 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so when we see Jesus' words and we see Jesus' works, what he has done for us, and then we respond in faith. It is then that we are saved. You need to know what Jesus did. You need to know what Jesus taught. You need them both if you're going to know him and if you're going to be saved. John 6 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I want to tell you, if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, you've never entered into a relationship with him, you don't know Jesus, our great desire for you as a church family, my great desire for you as a pastor is that you would come to a place where you are at the end of yourself and you know you can't fix what is wrong in your heart and in your life and you would surrender to Jesus Christ and receive what he's already done for you and what he freely offers to you. 
See, Christianity is a call to surrender, a call to confess, yes, I am a sinner, and yes, I am doomed apart from Christ, and my only hope is to believe that Christ and Christ alone His work on my behalf, his words which teach me who he is, those things alone can save when I trust in him. I believe in him, his words and his works. This is the gospel, and it's what the the book of Acts is, is all about. You might say, well, wait a second. You know, you've kind of been indicating words and works of Jesus, all he began to do and teach. I thought you said that was Luke. What does this have to do with Acts? And the connection is in the word began. Very important word. Don't miss it. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. You see, the gospel of Luke is about what Jesus began to do and teach. The book of Acts is about what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. That's what Acts is all about. That's what we're going to see. Someone wrote that Acts is a record of the continuation of Christ's works and words by the work of the Holy Spirit through his disciples, the church, to spread the gospel and advance his kingdom to all peoples. Let me say that again. Acts is a record of the continuation of Christ's works and words by the work of the Holy Spirit through his disciples, the church, to spread the gospel and advance his kingdom to all peoples. So we should not think of Uh, Luke is the story of Jesus and Acts is the story of the church. It is all about Jesus. And it's always all about Jesus. You know that, right? It's always all about Jesus. His words, his works, and his mission for us to carry out. You see, that's what Acts really records for us. What Jesus wants to do in us and through us. And we're going to be seeing that as his followers, our mission in life, is to take his words and his works to the world to help other people to see it. That is what the church is. That is what we are called to do. That's why, you know, Jesus is so closely identified with the church. The words and the works of his disciples are the words and the works of Jesus today. That's why, remember when Paul is persecuting the church? Remember that story? It's such a striking thing. Paul's knocked off his horse. He's blinded by this light. And this voice speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? What's the next word? Me. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is so closely identified with his people that he can talk Uh, in those terms. You can talk about that. Now, part of the preparation of the mission is what I've been explaining in some detail here, laying a foundation. We must know the gospel. We must understand what it is that we are communicating to the world. But I want you to see in verses three through five that there are three things that Jesus specifically does during this time frame for his disciples that he also is doing for us to prepare for the mission. The first one is that Jesus strengthens his disciples' faith by his resurrection appearances. So after his suffering on the cross, uh, between his resurrection and his ascension, we are told there are 40 days. After Easter, he was on this planet for 40 more days. And during those 40 days, uh, Jesus was preparing his disciples for the mission. It's kind of interesting. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus goes out into the wilderness and he spends how many days? 40 days getting ready for his earthly ministry, preparing himself. Now he spends 40 days at the end of his earthly ministry preparing his disciples 
to continue that ministry. He, he does things like appear um, to Thomas. And uh, Thomas is one of the apostles. Thomas has a nickname. What goes before Thomas? What, we call him Doubting Thomas, right? Because he was so discouraged. He was so depressed. He was so disappointed that all that kind of could come out of him was doubt. And when he heard some disciples say that Jesus was alive, he said, I need proof. And Jesus gave him proof. Jesus just shows up in a room one day. You know, it seems like he walked through a wall or something. He's just there. And he tells Thomas, look at my hands. Look at my side. Touch, see, and believe. And Thomas believes. Jesus did things like he ate with the disciples. Remember when he had breakfast on the beach? I mean, breakfast on the beach is just cool, right? If you could have breakfast on the beach, but then have it with Jesus. That would be awesome. And I was just thinking, what... What were they thinking? Because, you know, Jesus just shows up at different places. And I, I'm not sure they really were getting, at least in the first of these 40 days, that he had a resurrected body. I, I kind of want, you know, is he a spirit? Is he a ghost? This is kind of strange. They're trying to process it all. I'm wondering if he took this piece of fish, eating breakfast, and he put it in his mouth, if they thought maybe he'd just fall on the ground because he's a ghost and it's just going to go through. But it didn't because he had a body. And he actually ate. He was showing them, I am alive. This is who I am now. The, the apostles were eyewitnesses to his resurrection. Jesus gave them many proofs. And we know that happened because something changed in them. Something happened to those men between the time at the end of the Gospels where they were running for their lives and they were denying that they ever knew Jesus. And then you get into the book of Acts and they are now bold witnesses and they are ready to die. And what happened was they saw Jesus. They saw the risen Jesus. They understood the reality of his resurrection and now they weren't afraid. They were bold to speak the truth. Now John Piper wrote, you cannot be an authentic instrument in the hands of a living Christ if you do not think he is alive. And I just want to ask you, you don't have to answer. I just want to ask you, do you believe he is alive? See, he says, Piper says, until the apostles were profoundly persuaded that Jesus had broken the power of death and that he was alive with indestructible life and therefore could never be defeated and that therefore his cause was unstoppable. Until then, the apostles were ready to go back to fishing for a living. That's what they were going to do. They thought it was all over. Jesus prepared them by giving them proof that he was alive. And because they saw that he was alive, they knew that everything he had told them, everything he had taught them, everything he had said was true. Now, we are not apostles. We have not seen the resurrected Christ. What we do have is the witness, the testimony of their changed lives. We do have the scriptures that they wrote. And something else that's really cool, going back to Thomas, uh, Jesus said, here, Thomas, look, touch, believe. But then he said something else that's really cool for us today. He said, Thomas, do you remember this? He said, Thomas, I'm glad you believe, but I want to tell you, blessed are those who do not see and they believe. That's us. Do you believe? You're blessed. That's what Jesus said. You're blessed. You believe because you believe Jesus is alive. 
Second preparation, Jesus teaches them about the kingdom of God. And there's so much we could talk about here, but essentially the kingdom of God is the coming of Jesus Christ. In his life and in his death and in his resurrection, Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God. And through faith in him, who he is and what he's done, we receive kingdom life. We become part of the kingdom. Someone has written, the kingdom of God is life with God under the rule of God. Life with God under the rule of God. And the gospel of God's kingdom is the announcement that life as it was meant to be lived is once again available. And aren't you glad? Because aren't you looking around right now? Seems like more than ever. And this world is seriously messed up. That's the strongest word I'm able to use up here. (laughs) I mean, you know, think about it. Think about all the horrors of a broken world in which nature does the things we've seen nature do. Think about all the human evil that we see again and again and again, you know, from so many different sources. Just think about all the oppression. Think about all the suffering. Think about all the disease. And you have to think, there is something wrong. Isn't there with this world? Is this the way it's supposed to be? And the answer the Bible says is no. This is not what God created. We know because Jesus has come back that God is intervening in this world and God is changing things in this world. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. You're going to see the kingdom of God all through this book of Acts. In fact, the very last verses, I read these last week, Acts 28, 31. We see Paul as he is in prison. He is proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's teaching about Jesus and he's doing it boldly and without hindrance. See, we are to declare the kingdom of God. And you say, how do we do that? Well, if you go back to the end of Luke 24, we see how Jesus is talking to his disciples who are just trying to get their minds around things. And and we are told he opened their minds to understand scripture. If we're his followers, how does he equip us to do his mission? The shortest answer is he's already equipped us by his word His word is how we carry out his mission. And so we can do his mission as we are in his word, as we know his word and understand his works. That tells us how to live. And so one of the questions coming out of this text is, do you know the word of God? You know, we go to Acts chapter 8 when Philip uh, sees this Ethiopian man riding in a chariot, and he's told by the Holy Spirit to go up alongside him, and he gets up beside him, and he sees, he hears that this man is reading Isaiah, and he's reading about this lamb led to slaughter, and he asks if he wants some help explaining that, and the guy says, yes, I do. Philip climbs up in the chariot, and Luke records that Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at that scripture, he preached Jesus to him. This tells us several things. It tells us first that all Scripture points to Jesus. It also tells us that you don't have to know everything about theology and you don't have to understand all the biblical backgrounds of all of the books and you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew, but you do need to know how to take someone with Scripture and point them to Jesus. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And this just reminds us, if you're a disciple, God has called you to be on mission. Some of you are thinking, well, I don't know what to say. Then you need to get in the Word. 
Because the word, God's word, this book is where we learn what to say. And no one has to do it perfectly. And you can make mistakes. And guess what? You will make mistakes. Your job is to take God's word and help people see Jesus through that word. Third thing that Jesus did to prepare uh, those early followers, he empowers them with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Verse four, he talks about the gift my father promised. Of course, this is based on Old Testament prophecies. We can go to Joel chapter two, Ezekiel chapter 36. All of God's people in this time would have thought that the mark of the coming messianic kingdom, when God comes in the Messiah, that's gonna, we're gonna see a pouring of the Holy Spirit. And so the disciples went there. We know this is about to happen in Acts chapter two at Pentecost. He's telling him to wait for this. And there's so much we're going to be needing to talk about regarding this. But today, I just want to point out one thing. I want you to understand that for us to live the life Jesus called us to live, we have to live in the Spirit. We need to be empowered by the Spirit. We need to understand God's Word as much as we can and then allow God's Spirit to direct us. And again, we see this all through the book of Acts God's Spirit guiding the mission, telling Paul to go to this city, but not to that, telling Philip to talk to the Ethiopian eunuch, on and on and on. We even see that in the life of Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, Jesus is the Son of God, and you might ask yourself, well, why does he really need the Holy Spirit? Because he's God's Son. He's already God, isn't he? And yet, when we study his life from beginning to end, we see Holy Spirit even before he was born, when the angel comes to Mary, Luke records this for us, the angel tells Mary that Jesus is going to be conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He begins his ministry, he gets baptized. And you remember, he's down in the water, he's getting baptized, and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends, and we are told the Holy Spirit remains on him for the rest of his ministry. He's anointed with the Holy Spirit. He goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and he reads from the book of Isaiah. He talks about the Spirit of the Lord being upon me. Jesus was led by the Spirit everywhere he went. In fact, it's kind of fascinating. This is in Luke 4. As Jesus begins his ministry after the baptism, we are told that the Spirit led him into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days. And this kind of reminds us that following the Spirit does not mean you're never going to suffer. does not mean you won't have trials. And we are told in the end of the Gospels that after Jesus was buried, he was raised to life by the Spirit. So here's what's pretty crazy and actually kind of cool. In Romans 8.11, we are told as God's people, as Jesus' followers, we are told that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside us if we know Christ. In other words, we need the Holy Spirit to live the life Jesus has called us to live. And if you try to live it apart from him, you will fail always. So that's the preparation. These are the things that are done for us. And the second thing that shows us this mission as possible is that God himself sends us out on the mission. Verses six through eight say, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, anybody else here uh, 
hear that the world was going to end yesterday? Did you guys notice that little thing that was out there? I always love it when the news just gives me my sermon illustrations. I don't even have to do any research. So that's actually what a guy named David Mead uh, claimed. Uh, David Mead uh, says he is a Christian numerologist. I say there is no such thing. I say anybody who says they're a Christian numerologist, you should ignore, okay? Um, he was saying the world was going to end uh, until Friday, and then he started kind of like backpedaling a little bit. And so now his latest thing is, especially today because it's Sunday, the day after the world was going to end, uh, he is now claiming that this is the end is beginning. You just can't tell, but it really is beginning to end and so, and we can all breathe a sigh of relief, right? Actually, he says, we just have a few more weeks and everything's going to change. Uh, so, well, he bases his claims just like everyone else before him, and there have been so many, okay? Um, on a couple of verses here and there, he bases it on some verses in Luke 21, some verses in Revelation, uh, along with some numerical codes that he says he has discovered in the Bible. And let me just tell you about this, too. There are no numerical codes in the Bible. None. So, Christian numerologists, anybody says numerical codes, you have a choice. You can stop reading, which is what I recommend, or you can continue to waste your time. That's your option, okay? It's not true. Can I make a prediction? I'm going to make a prophecy whether you say yes or not, okay? I'm just going to give you one. Uh, David Mead, like all the others before him, is wrong. That's my prediction. And I make that prediction, why? Because, because it says in God's word that the Father sets the times and dates. And in fact, you go to Luke 17, uh, verses 26 to 37, Jesus said that he himself did not know when he was in his earthly ministry. That means anybody who tells you when it's going to happen, they're wrong. You can breathe easy and go shopping and watch a TV show on that day, whatever you want to do. It's not going to happen on that day. Here's the application I want to make for us, and it's very important. Uh, you know, that stuff is kind of absurd, ridiculous, but we need to see from these, this paragraph that we are sent as disciples not to make predictions about the future, but to bear witness to Jesus. And, and I'll just make this a little more personal and closer to home. There are some of us, and I'm not thinking about anybody in particular, so if this is you um, it's the Holy Spirit talking to you, not me, because I don't have anybody in my mind. I'm just saying this. There are some of us who are so much more fascinated by Revelation and Daniel and all the prophecies and all the speculations about what toe that is and what finger that represents and this sign here and that sign there. We're way more interested in all of that than we are interested and fascinated by the gospel. And I'm just telling you, if your heart beats faster when someone starts trying to speculate about prophecy and if your heart starts slowing down and you kind of have to stifle a yawn when someone talks about the gospel, you're out of whack, okay? You're out of balance as a follower of Christ. Prophecy is in the Bible. Prophecy has an importance, but it is not central. The gospel is central, and this tells us that. In fact, in verse 6, I want to tell you, the disciples don't ask a bad question. It's kind of a natural question with what they knew. Jesus had just talked about the Spirit coming. They knew the prophecies um, about the kingdom following the coming of the Spirit from the Old Testament. And so they're thinking, is this the time? But they misunderstood. And I'm going to give you three misunderstandings that they had about the kingdom. 
Uh, first, they under, misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. When they said restore, they still had their minds wrapped around the idea that it was a physical kingdom. And they didn't see that Jesus' kingdom was spiritual. And it is a spiritual kingdom. That's why Jesus is pointing them to the Holy Spirit. They also misunderstood the extent of the kingdom. They said to Israel, they're still thinking about one nation when the thrust of the entire Old Testament at its base was that God had called out a people, Israel, so that they could in turn be a blessing to the entire world. That's the Abrahamic covenant. We see it all through the Old Testament. Isaiah 49, 6 says Messiah is going to come and he's going to be a light to the ends of the earth. It wasn't just for Israel. And then they misunderstood the timing of the kingdom. They, they thought it was going to happen right then. They didn't understand that that the kingdom comes person to person to person as we share. See, Jesus hears their question and he knows their misunderstanding. He doesn't rebuke them. He just answers them. And he says, the father has set these times. He says, don't get distracted with the things that belong only to God. In fact, I would say verse seven could be translated like this. Jesus is saying, this is not your business. Is there anybody here who needs to be told from time to time, this is not your business? Is there anybody sitting next to you who needs to be told from time to time, this is not your business? Would you like to raise your hands right now because they're on your row? So Jesus is just saying to them, this is not your business. But you know what verse 8 is about? Jesus says in verse 8, this is your business. Witness to the gospel is our business. You see, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. We do know he is coming back, but we don't know when. And so our focus should be until then that we have a mission. And that mission is to witness to the gospel, to tell people about Jesus Christ. Now, I told you last week that verse 8 is the key verse in the book. And there's so much we could see in this. I just want to mention this, just this kind of central question that's Inside all of Acts, it's a question we have to ask. How in the world do 12 apostles, many of them educated, how in the world do 120 followers in Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, how in the world do those people, just those few people, fewer people that are in this room right now, how do they share the gospel? And the gospel spreads from them so rapidly that within 300 years, the Roman emperor makes Christianity the official religion of the empire. How does that happen? And the only way we can understand it is they receive power, something beyond them, something greater than them, enormous power. And what I want you to understand is this. If you have been empowered by the Spirit, there is one key way you will know this. This is the central thing. The Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. There's a lot of churches and a lot of people that get focused on things that are to the side, that are not the central issue. The sign, the key sign in the Bible, in the New Testament of Spirit filling is bold witness. That is the sign of Spirit empowerment. We witness to who Jesus is is. That's why Peter can deny Jesus at the end of the Gospels. And just a few weeks later, he stands up on Pentecost and he preaches and 3,000 people come to faith. That's what happens when Paul, who is a persecutor, Paul calls himself a murderer. He had people killed for their faith in Christ. He meets Jesus Christ. His life is turned around and he becomes an apostle. 
See, when we are filled with the Spirit, empowered with the Spirit, the, the key sign is that we start telling other people about Jesus, who he is, what he has done. Uh, let me make three observations about being a bold witness that we see in verse 8. And the first one is Jesus commands all believers to be his witnesses. That's all of us, every one of us. It says, you will be my witnesses. And in Greek, that, that verb and that pronoun, they're plural. They're plural. It's for all of us. In Acts chapter 2, we're going to see very soon at Pentecost, when we study that chapter, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit comes on all who believe in Jesus. This is a calling for everyone. I'll put it like this. If you're not witnessing, you're not following. You cannot be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ without telling other people about him as he gives you opportunity. And so I just want to ask you, I asked you last week, I'm going to ask you again And guess what? I'm probably going to ask you in the weeks to come, so you might as well just get used to it. Who is God calling you to share his love and grace with? Can you write a name down? You ought to write a name down. You ought to pray for that person. You ought to ask God to open a door so you can talk to them because God has called you to be a witness. The second observation is that our mission involves suffering. Now, this comes from the, the Greek word for witness. It's pronounced martus. We get our word martyr from this word. And here's the thing. A lot of us mistakenly think that God only wants us to witness if it's comfortable. I hate when it's awkward, and I don't think that God would have me to say, say anything when it's awkward. You ever thought like that? Of course you have. I have too. I heard someone say once that the definition of witnessing is two very nervous people talking to each other, (laughs) right? I mean, you know, that's kind of the way it is. And some of us just want to stay comfortable. And it's kind of amazing how when we want to stay comfortable, we just end up kind of like, you know, never actually sharing our faith, right? When we let our discomfort prevent us from sharing our faith with someone, especially if that person knows we are a Christian, here's what we are communicating to them. One of two things. You are screaming with your silence that what you have as a Christian really is not that big a deal. Or if you say, well, it is a big deal, then you are screaming with your silence that you don't really care about that person because you're not bothering to tell them. You don't want to be awkward We need to expect it to be uncomfortable. And you're going to see this all through the book of Acts. I want to just tell you, we should today be grateful that in America, where we are blessed to live, at least right now, generally it's just discomfort. Because for the last 2,000 years, in most of the places in the world where most of the believers lived in the world, it wasn't just uncomfortable. It was painful. People suffered. Sometimes they lost their lives. And so... Witness, mission, involves suffering. This is all through the Bible. Third, never forget the Holy Spirit gives us power to be witnesses. We've talked about this. We are never on our own. And so therefore, we should seek the Holy Spirit's power. We should rely on his power. I want to tell you about uh, the, the word for power here. It's the Greek word dunamis. And it actually only entered the English language a little over 100 years ago. It's a more recent word. Uh, And it happened when a Swedish chemist and engineer whose name is Alfred Nobel, he died in 1896, he made this discovery that uh, changed his life, it changed the history of the world, it made him an extremely wealthy man. 
he discovered a power stronger than anything the world had known up to that time. And he had a friend who was a Greek scholar, and he asked this friend a question. He said, I want to know what is the word in Greek for explosive power? And this friend answered, dunamis. And Nobel said, well, I'm going to call my discovery by that name. And he called his discovery of explosive power dynamite. That's how that word entered our language. Here it refers to the explosive, life-giving power of the gospel coming from the Holy Spirit. It's not political power. It's not military power. It's not intellectual power. It's not the power of persuasion. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that flows from God, and it just reminds us that the power in our witness is not about us. It's not about how smart you are. It's not about how much you know. It's not about how clever or persuasive you are. It's about Him. And that's good news. That's really good news. You see, God's mission to us is for ordinary people, just like you, just like me, Somebody said, when the ordinary people of God, equipped by the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God, focusing on the son of God, do the mission of God, amazing things happen. And God is calling us to be that kind of people. Here's the third thing. God confirms his mission. Verses 9 through 11 talk about his Jesus' ascension to heaven. This signifies the end of his earthly ministry. And I want to give you three things that the ascension tells us that you can ponder and you'll see how they encourage you in doing the work he's called you to do. The first thing is his ascension means Jesus is in control of all things. Jesus now seated at the right hand of the Father. And that means, this is good news, if I suffer persecution, if I suffer hardship, it will never come to me unless it has gone first through his sovereign hand. This means, in terms of witness, that we don't need to be afraid of people. In fact, Jesus one time says, don't worry about the person who can just kill you bodily. Don't fear the person who can destroy your body. Fear God who can destroy, destroy body and soul in hell. We fear God, not fear man, because he has the authority. Second thing, Jesus' ascension means that he will return in the same way to judge. The ascension is a promise of his second coming. And it just reminds us of the third thing. It's time to get busy. We don't know when he's going to come. But he is coming. One day he's coming. In the meantime, as long as he gives us, to be a faithful follower means that we will tell as many people as God gives us opportunity to tell about him. Now, how did the disciples respond to his ascension? Well, we see in those verses that they were kind of bewildered. Like, wouldn't you be bewildered too if some guy just starts floating up in front of you and keeps going higher and the next thing you know he's gone? They were bewildered. But then, but then Luke 24, 52 says, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So they were filled with worship and joy and they returned to Jerusalem in obedience to Jesus' word. This is what he told them to do. Our response to the ascended king should be the same. We carry out his mission through joyful worship and through obedience. 
You see, the risen king's ministry continues because the king is not dead. It continues because the king's spirit and the king's word, we have those in our possession. It continues because the kingdom of the king is here today, right now in our midst, and it is still everywhere advancing through the king's people, and that's us, his witnesses, his spirit-empowered witnesses to the works and to the words of Jesus. We have a mission, and it's possible, not in our own strength, but in his. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Father God, we give you thanks today for your love and your grace. We thank you, Lord, that uh, first of all, most of all, that you have saved us through your son. And Lord, help us as we have read and reflected on these words to see where we need to follow you more faithfully. Lord, I pray that um, you would be bringing to our minds all across this room right now uh, the names and faces of people that we know, people that we love, people that don't know who you are or they've never met you. And Lord, would you just uh, call us out to pray for those to ask for opportunities, ask for faithfulness, to share what you've done in our lives. Lord, may the kingdom advance here at Southwinds, across Tracy, across Mountain House, across Lathrop, wherever we go, whatever we do. We ask all of these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus our Lord, and all God's people together said,